1: Greetings and welcome to the African-American studies channel, of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James Stencil, and today I'm going to be talking with Ira Dworkin. He's an assistant professor of English at Texas A&M University. And we're going to be talking about his book, which is a part of the John Hope Franklin series in African-American history and culture. (music) Greetings and welcome to the African-American studies channel, of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James Stensel, and today I'm going to be talking with Ira Dworkin. He's an assistant professor of English at Texas A&M University, and we're going to be talking about his book, which is a part of the John Hope Franklin series in African-American history and culture, and the book is Congo Love Song, African-American Culture and the Crisis of the Colonial State, published by UNC Press. I think you're going to really like this interview. Ira's a great guy, and he worked a long time on this book project putting it together and you'll be able to hear his passion um as you listen to this interview so I, I hope you enjoy and he's talking about the connections between African-Americans and Africans in um, the continent of Africa so enjoy I'm your host James Stansel and I have the great pleasure today of being here with another Texan just like me uh, what is the old expression that they say we we're, we're not from Texas but we got here as soon as we could right So I'm here with Ira Dworkin. He is an assistant professor of English at Texas A&M University. And we're going to be talking about his book today that's published by our friends at the University of North Carolina Press. And it's called Congo Love Song, African-American culture and the crisis of the colonial state. Congo Love Song. Ira, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great, James. Thanks for having me.
1: It is my pleasure. When I saw your book come up. As I'm doing my research for writers, scholars and authors, I said, oh, man, I got to get Ira. This is a great cover. It's a great topic. And, you know, you're from UNC Press. I have some bias there as a UNC grad. Um, but I was like, I got to get him on the show. So Congo loves Song, Awesome. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about your background, Ira, if you don't mind. Can you tell the audience a little bit about you know yourself, your background, where you come from and maybe your interest in this topic in this book?
0: Sure, absolutely. Uh, Thanks again, James. Um, So this book, well, I should say I am. uh, I'm at Texas A&M University. I've Mm -hmm. been here for three years in the English department. Um, I'm originally um, from the East Coast. I'm originally was born in Philadelphia and grew up in the suburbs there, and did most of my education on the East Coast as well. um, In a variety of Areas from Afro American studies and English mm-hmm. um, and American studies. Um, this project itself, you know, comes out of several places. One is kind of the question about how Africa gets sort of configured within um, this idea of African American studies, right. um, and particularly within, you know, the field I'm working in specifically is kind of broadly kind of literary and cultural studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, when I was doing my um, doctorate at the City University of New York under the direction of Michelle Wallace, uh, yes, um, you know, I had um, come across, um, among other materials, in the appendix to. John Hope Franklin's biography of George Washington mm-hmm. Williams. He had included three pamphlets that George Washington Williams had written when he had gone to the Congo um, in 18- in 1890. Um, and reading these texts um, was really kind of remarkable, and you know, enabled me in a particular way to be able to think about how we understand um, Africa is being configured. So Williams, as really one of the sort of founders of African American history, mm-hmm. uh, is really kind of engaged with modern politics in modern Africa at the start of the sort of modern colonial era right. in really significant ways. Um, and that sort of developed into a dissertation, um, it's much different than the book here, but it Mm -hmm. did look at the Congo, and it looks specifically at the sort of period immediately before Marcus Garvey's arrival in the United States in 1916, so looking at the 1890s and early years of the 20th century, um, because during that period, um, you know, one of the things, we get this idea that sort of Africa is, you know, configured as a kind of romantic homeland, and certainly you know, it has many resonances um, for black folks in the U.S. in that way. But one of the things I sort of uncovered, sort of beginning with Williams and some of the other figures, um, looking at the archives of historically black colleges and universities, looking in the black press, you start to see engagements with modern Africa right. that are part of that story as well. And that are very much part of a kind of modern political discourse. Um, And so for the book, the title is Congo Love Song, which Mm -hmm. comes from sort of great vaudeville song by James Weldon Johnson and um, J. Rosamond Johnson. Um, And it's a song that gets sort of read and understood and interpreted um, as something that's kind of very much within a kind of primitivist tradition, Mm -hmm. right? That these, you know, and the Congo is just a kind of generic term for the kind of African continent. But certainly we know, obviously, that, you know, James Walton Johnson was a very serious political figure, um, you know, and, you know, obviously probably best known to folks for Lift Every Voice and Sing. Um, The Negro National Anthem. Yes, exactly. Um, And sort of had a later sort of diplomatic career. But the idea is you have this song that's sort of talking about the Congo and talking about the Congo at the moment when African Americans are sort of taking a very sort of specific political interest mm-hmm. in the Congo, right? And so I think there's ways that that history, much of that history, may be lost to us today in the mm-hmm. sort of 21st century. But certainly for folks who are sort of listening to this song, which was a huge seller, I mean, mm-hmm. sold, like, I, um, you know, the um, you know the music which would have sold was sold and sold internationally when people heard the Congo what they thought about was they thought about King Leopold's human rights abuses and um, and folks who were familiar with Johnson's work sort of would have been familiar with the work of African American activists around that issue at that moment right and so the meaning of that song is transformed from you know something that's kind of primitivist or vaudeville um, into something that's really kind of engaging with um, the politics of colonialism at that particular moment
1: Congo love song. You know, maybe we can get it playing in the background or something while we're doing yeah. our <laughs> Yeah. while we we're, while we're doing our interviews. <laughs> wow. And so um I like to ask the writers and the and the scholars, um Ira, you know, I know you mentioned this was related to your dissertation, but you know, in yeah. terms of working on the book project, about how long do you estimate that it took for you to complete this project?
0: Yeah. Um, so it took me, um, it's taken me more than 15 years. I mean, I wow. finished the, the dissert I mean, since the dissertation, mm-hmm. it's been, um, the dissertation was finished in 2003. Okay. Um, and I've been able to kind of continue to work on, um, you know, to sort of expand. I mean, so it's a very, the di- project looks very different than it did at that time. Sure, sure. But during that time, um, you know, I've had the opportunity to be a visiting professor mm-hmm. um, at the University of Kinshasa in the wow. Democratic Republic. Congo for a year, um, you know, done multiple research trips there. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I spent prior to coming to Texas, I spent six years um, in Cairo, Egypt at the American University in Cairo teaching there. Um, you know, and which has enabled me to do, and as as well as sort of conducting a lot of extensive archival research, Mm -hmm. um, in the States, particularly at HBCUs, um, but also at, um, the Presbyterian Historical Society, um, where, um, which had a cohort of African American missionaries traveling to the Congo in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, doing additional research and presentations, both in Democratic Republic of Congo, also in Europe, particularly in Belgium, Mm -hmm. uh which was the colonial rulers of the um, Congo for region, much, of, right. much of the 20th century. Um, and so being able to kind of do that kind of work and bring that kind of, you know, that kind of archival practice to bear is um, um, that sort of explains in part some of the, um, you know, the, the time that's been spent, um, you know, <laughs> bringing this project to publication. Right.
1: So it wasn't just straight line. This is all that you were working on. It was kind of, you know, zagging lines, but you got there.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm glad for the opportunity to be able to kind of have shared this work with sort of colleagues in the Congo and, you mm-hmm. know, elsewhere, um, you know, that I've been able to sort of work in, in Egypt and places where I've been able to do kinds of, um, you know, a lot of the research um, and writing for this project, as well as in Texas, I should say, as well. So, yeah. Well, you did a great job. I, I really, you know,
1: I- enjoyed it, you know. And you have, you know, great images in there, you know, and it's, it's, it's very yeah. well organized. And and definitely for anyone who's interested in African-American history or, you know, the connections, like Iris said, between, you know, the, the continent of Africa and, you know, early 20th century, 19th century. I mean, this is a, you know, a great book. And so I mention the title again, Congo Love Song, African-American Culture and the Crisis of the Colonial State. And uh, the book is published by UNC Press. Uh, shout out to them. I'm sure Ira is appreciative.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs>
1: absolutely. So, you know, if you're interested in African history, African American history, definitely want to check this out. And Ira did, you know, great work. You can tell that, you know, it was a labor of love and it was <laughs> 15 years uh, yes. well spent. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You're a well traveled man, Ira. I mean, that's that's, that's <laughs> awesome. Lots of great experience. You've been to Africa more than I have.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, I've been quite fortunate.
1: Yeah. A- absolutely. And so let's talk for a second about this, this great cover you, you've got here. Yeah. Yeah. And then we can get more into, you know, some of the things that you found or that you want to share, you know, with the audience. You know, for folk who aren't necessarily, you know, scholars and, and, and read academic books all the time, book covers yeah. and things like that are very interesting. It, it, yeah, attracts, sure. it attracts the eye, you know, the you know, the, the title and all that you know, is very important. And you talked a little bit about where
0: the title comes from. Yes. Uh,
1: But let's talk about this image that you have on on the cover here. Uh, Sure. Explain that a little bit to the audience.
0: Sure. So the image, um, which I can describe um, for podcast, it's it's a image, um, a photograph um, Mm -hmm. from around 1900 of two individuals on the left um, in a white suit with a pith helmet is mm-hmm. William Henry Shepard who is okay. an African-American missionary from Virginia okay. um, who was one of the co-founders of the American Presbyterian Congo Mission mm-hmm. and standing to his left um, is um, Chief uh, Max Malinge mm-hmm. who was the former prince of um, the Cuba people. He was oh, okay. the son of Lukenga Second. II okay. um, and so he had been the King um, from 1892 to 1896. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is kind of you know, um, and I should and I should point out as well as part of this context is the Cuba where Shepard did most of his work. were subject to relatively indirect rule, certainly during the first few decades okay. of, uh, of Leopold's colonialism. Um, so a lot of the there was very sort of strong and very important kind of histories of governance, which I think appeal to a lot of the African Americans who were there. Mm-hmm. Um, indigent, you know, histories of kind of governance. Um, and anyway, so um, when um, the chief who's pictured next to um, next to William Shepard, mm-hmm. um, his father was overthrown in 1896, but Shepard maintained relationships with that. And so Shepard was really kind of engaged with um, kind of Cuba politics, which was sort of cr- increasingly being, um, if, if not shaped, certainly mm-hmm. um, impacted mm-hmm. obviously by the expanding colonial empire of, right. King, Le- of King Leopold at that point. Um, anyway, so this is a picture of that that I think sort of captures a lot of um, what the book is about. I should also mention as well that Shepard ended up. This was so. This was a close friend of Shepard, and mm-hmm. Shepard ended up naming his son um, huh. after af- after Ma- after um, after Max. And so, um, and, or his son was known was known as Max oh, Max Malinge, who was the um, who was the uh, who was the former prince of the Koopa people.
1: Wow, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. And I got to give you a, a, a shout out for that, Ira. You you got those names, man, just like that. Damn, damn.
0: <laughs> that's that's that's, that's um, part part of uh, fifteen years of oh, okay. uh, yeah. uh, work on this. And I guess the other thing I would mention, as well is this this photo, I should say, as well, comes from the archives of the Presbyterian Historical Society, okay. um, which is located in Philadelphia, and okay. they've been sort of wonderful in helping with that and some of the other images um, that Great. I've been able to. Including the book,
1: yeah, yeah, and as I mentioned before, man, these images are, are great. You know, yeah. it, re- it really helps yeah. you kind of, you know, get the feel. Uh, for Thank what you. Was, you know what was going on there. I mean, wow, that was awesome. And so, you know, I often ask the you know authors, this: Did you choose this photo, or is it one of several that the uh, publishers you know let you choose from, or you know, what, what was your you know kind of say so in it?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I did. I mean, the press was really great and sort of really Mm -hmm. kind of understood what my – and shared, I think, my vision for what Mm -hmm. this project was. Um, I mean, there are other images that I have and images that I like as well. I mean, this image, um, which I think probably says something about the kind of material of the archives. I mean, a number of the images are not as sort of high quality as well um, just just because of where they are in the archives. And, um, you know, but this is a sort of, you know, there's – we have sort of a pristine kind of copy of this, which kind of looks, you know, is quite remarkable. You know here as well, Um, and so obviously this is um, you know something that I think really kind of you know represents quite a bit about the book, and I think is um, I agree you know folks really enjoy. Though I have a number of other images that I'm quite fond of as well inside inside the book as well.
1: All right, and for those of you who are are listening, like Iris said, you know he did a great job describing the image; just pretty good there. Um, But you can go to our our, and you may already see this on our new books network page for the new books in African-American studies. We've got a blog page set up and I've got some information about Ira there and and the book. You can click through from that page and it'll take you right to um, our partner, Amazon. You can purchase the book from there. You can also link to Ira's uh, uh, university page, you know, as well and the publisher page. So you can see the image right up there. Um, that he described, and I tell you, with that great description, you, it's probably right in your head. Right? <laughs> that was that was pretty good there. But yeah, I, I, this is a, a very very nice image here, and it definitely, like Iris said, it fits the work very well. Um, so well done, good selection there, you know, as, as well as the the title. Because as soon as I saw the title, I was immediately thinking back to James Weldon Johnson, like you, yeah. like you mentioned, you know, Iris. So it it definitely uh, fits very well there. Good job, and the book is Congo Love Song. African-American culture and the crisis of the colonial state and we're here with Ira Dworkin he's an assistant professor of English at Texas A&M University and the book Congo Love Song is published by our friends at UNC Press so if you like the things that Ira's talking about here and you're really interested in this topic you want to go in and purchase it as soon as you can right get all the copies while they're available and Ira would appreciate it I'm sure right
0: yeah, yep, absolutely. And let me just actually add to that, that it's part of something that you had mentioned before we uh-huh. started recording. And it's actually part of the John Hope Franklin series in African American yes. history and culture, which is published by UNC Press. And Franklin, of course, is, well, um, this sort of. You know, one of the sort of foremost historians mm-hmm. of the 20th century, but also um, the biographer, as I mentioned, of George Washington Williams, yes. um, who's a central figure in this book. So it's kind of a, something in addition to sort of Franklin's legacy. It's mm-hmm. a particular honor for me to be kind of included in a series that bears his name.
1: Absolutely. Well,
0: he would be very proud. Ira. You know, he would be very proud of <laughs> your, your,
1: your work your, um, yeah. from what I can recall about him as an undergrad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, you don't have to worry about that. You did him well. sir. (laughs) You did him well. All right. So let's maybe get into some of, you know, maybe what you would feel like are some of the key findings or some kind of important things that you would want to point out, Ira, to people who uh, may be interested in reading the book or things that you maybe want them, once they get into the book, to pay close attention to or look out for.
0: Yeah. uh, Wow thank you, um so I mean, I think there's a number of things I mean, I think one of the things I had mentioned before mm-hmm. was um, you know trying to think about this earlier tradition um, in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century yeah. um, whereas there, you know there are these moments um, you know certainly around the Garvey movement, certainly around the Harlem mm-hmm. Renaissance Marcos certainly around, yeah, absolutely, um, and certainly around um, you know, the independence movements in Africa in the 19 late 1950s, early 1960s, um, when they're very clear, um, Connections between African American communities um, and the African continent. Um, and one of the things that I'm really kind of interested in exploring in this book is what happens if we look at this as part of a longer kind of cultural history mm-hmm. as well. Um, so, for, if I can give so the last chapter of the book um, mm-hmm. is on Malcolm X and Malcolm X's sort of work around the Congo during, you know, really the final, yes. final, five, final months of his life. Um, and so, one of the sort of things I described there that kind of makes this point is that when he was giving an interview, Um, or as part of a debate in late November of 1964, Malcolm X was, and this was after um, the U.S. had effectively had had provided air cover for Belgian mercenaries invading um, Stanleyville, which was a rebel-held region. Mm -hmm. Um, It's Kisangani is what the sort of current name of the city is. Um, And Malcolm was debating this, and Malcolm, um, as part of this debate, with someone who's, um, you know, they start talking about history during the colonial era. Uh, And so, and one of the things that Malcolm mentions at this point is that he had been reading a book published by Mark Twain called King Leopold's Soliloquy, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a book from 1904 when Mark Twain, um, of course, the famous white American writer, Mm -hmm. um, you know, was involved in the Congo reform movement. well part of that book that Twain's writing is actually based on um, the an eyewitness report of William Henry Shepard, the African American oh, wow. yes. the African American missionary who's pictured on the cover of this mm-hmm. book as kind of central figures who kind of appears sort of quite consistently um, throughout you know, throughout the book itself. Mm-hmm. And so what you have in that case of Malcolm, who in 19 is, you know, in 1964, talking about the Congo, he's also making connections that harken in a relatively straight line Mm -hmm. back to this earlier history and this history of William Henry Shepard, for instance, um, you know, in the the 19th century as well. And so you have this kind of much longer trajectory of African-American engagements. Um, And it's not an unbroken line by any means, but Mm -hmm. I think it's. One that we want to kind of think about. And I think there's a particular value to kind of thinking about it holistically. Um, And so I think that's certainly part of um, what I want people to come away, um, you know, away from the book Mm -hmm. uh, within a kind of appreciation for. Um, I mean, another kind of piece that I think is kind of intriguing as well through a very familiar cultural text Mm -hmm. um, is Langston Hughes's poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. Um, One of my favorites. uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, mine, too, and I think for so many people um, as well. And so when he sort of talks about the Congo, you know, we can kind of understand, well, what, what is it that Hughes is writing about when he's writing about the Congo? What does that mean in sort of 1920 when he's writing this poem? Um, And one of the things, I mean, sort of Hughes was involved in the NAACP at this point, Mm -hmm. James, you know, at at this point as well. And, you know, this is also the time when James Weldon Johnson is inviting um, William Henry Shepard to speak at NAACP meetings. Um, You know, there's distinctions between, you know, Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, you know, Johnson. And, you know, so these are figures who would have been much more quite familiar um, in the. Or day and certainly who would have been familiar as well, you know, appearing through things like the Crisis Magazine mm-hmm. um, and other kinds of, you know, publications of that time. Um, and so that what we see is, you know, we think about that poem as sort of being representative of kind of, you know, sort of connections to kind of a... Um, Ancient and sometimes classical history, which it is, but it's also operating. I think, and this is certainly part of Hughes's genius, operating on kind of multiple levels, including one that we can kind of understand through, um, you know, African Americans who are traveling, um, who are traveling in the Congo. Part of this history is, which is worth mentioning as well, is when you think about. Um, Shepard and other folks, I mean, you know, the, the people I'm writing about, um, you, you know, were the products of HBCUs, as mm-hmm. I mentioned as well. Um, and the history of HBCUs is and one that includes colleges and universities, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, which have had long histories of engagement with Africa um, <clears throat> through their graduates working um, working in Africa, as well as in the case of, um, you know, some of these figures, significant numbers of African students attending these students, really going right. back to going back to the 19th century. Um, and so when we think about how they understood Africa, um, you know, we you know, need to understand and sort of look at the, you know, look at the archives and papers and publications of a lot of these locations um, to be able to kind of fully, I think, appreciate um, that history. And, and the idea is that what you get then is you get Africa is no longer purely a kind of um, an abstract
1: yeah. abstract concept
0: for them. An, an, an abstract concept. You know, it's something that they're engaging with, mm-hmm. you know, really across the continent and not just mm-hmm. in terms of the Congo, in much more concrete and material ways. And that's, I think, one of the things that I'm trying to bring attention to with this book.
1: Absolutely. And I think you did a, you know, a great job with it, for sure. And, you know, when you, know, when you, and when you mentioned that, you know, you're talking about like it's more of an abstract concept probably for us today than, it, you know, unless you're attending an HBCU or somewhere where you have students who are coming from, you know, from the continent. You know, I think just an an average African-American person in some small town or something, Africa seems like it's a universal way. It could be like Mars or something. It's not something that
0: they may be as familiar with. No, I mean, I think that's right. And I think part of the sort of challenge is that I think, you know, in a way, um, you know, even, and, you know, again, sort of thinking about kind of um, this sort of, I think, I don't think it's, reach to talk about the kind of larger failures of sort of the mainstream press and mm-hmm. the best to kind of cover modern African politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a lot of assumptions and there's examples of this. And even examples I mentioned in the book, there's examples um, that we tend to project, you know, our own kind of um, sort of collective ignorance around these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we assume that it's always been that way, right? We assume that it's always been, um, you know, that way in the 19th century and in the early 20th century, but that's certainly not the case. I mean, certainly, I think folks who spend time with, um, you know, reading the black press from the 19th and early 20th century are able to kind of get a pretty clear understanding that, you know, there was very, very sort of sophisticated forms of engagement with modern Africa that have a kind of long history. And I Mm -hmm. think... you know, which people like George Washington Williams and people like William Shepard and people like Althea Brown gets um, Ed Edmiston, who I write about in the book. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And were, and even someone like Booker T. Washington, who I write about in the book as well, were really kind of familiar with um, Pauline Hopkins, who is an editor of the Colored American magazine, um, you know, wrote about a lot of these issues in the early 20th century as well. And there are things that shape um, You know, I think a lot of the kind of cultural practices, whether it's something like Johnson's song, which Mm. is the basis for the title, or we talk about the fiction of someone like Pauline Hopkins, um, Mm. fiction that she was publishing in the Colored American magazine, um, or the poetry of Langston Hughes. Um, You know, there's a litany really of examples of folks whose ideas of Africa come from a range of sources, and those sources are really part of a kind of engagement with the politics of colonialism um, in ways that I think are really worth... um, you know, considering and exploring and reflecting on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was a history teacher in the you know high school classroom for almost 20 years. And it really would disappoint me to hear students, particularly, you know, students of color. And, you know, we talk about Africa that they're thinking that, you know, you used to have people over there with no shoes on and they're living in grass huts and, you know, all that. And not realizing that, you know, you know, you have, you know, modern society there as you, you know, as you do today. You know?
0: i think the um i mean one of the examples of that would be um, and one of the more interesting and sort of i think um less well known figures in the book um is as i met who I ju- a woman who I just mentioned thea Brown edmiston who yes. graduated from, um graduated from fisk university in the early um in the early tw- um in the early twentieth century nineteen o three um and she had gotten at fisk a kind of really important education in classical languages and Mm -hmm. in languages. And this is one of the things you see actually for among the African Americans who are working as missionaries, particularly is there's a sort of really rather impressive facility with languages. I mean, among other things, um, the African Americans who were serving certainly in the American Presbyterian mission during the early years tended to be, um, you know, much better educated, um, than their white, um, than their white colleagues. Mm -hmm. Um, so Athea Brown at Edmiston, um, when she works, um, um, you know, she really kind of commits herself to working on a dictionary um, mm. of the Shang language, which is the language of the Kuba people. Um, and it's a project that she works on um, even longer than I worked on, much longer, <laughs> than, on Congo Love Song, um, about th- 30 years. Um, and, it's wow. she, and it's a project that she – and it's a project – and um, during that time, of course um, – you know, she faced a lot of resistance in trying to get this published because she really imagined this as what would be a much more kind of scholarly kind of project, mm-hmm. um, and you know, rather than something that might help, um, you know, be much more sort of narrow in its sort of you know providing a kind of service to missionaries and often to kind of colonial administrators mm-hmm. who relied on the missionaries, um, for a lot of this linguistic work. Um, but so one of the things that I think, um, is kind of remarkable in this book that, um, that she published in the early 1930s, I should say as well, even as she published while she was a missionary, but some of the funding that she received actually came through Fisk university where Mm -hmm. she would speak and and raise money at Fisk. Um, and so which, if, if, to just take that in a sort of brief tangent, mm-hmm. someone like her and someone like Shepard, who had attended um, Hampton, um, Hampton Institute, now Hampton University, mm-hmm. um, you know, maintained really important, strong connections to the HBCUs where they were students. Yeah. Uh, and even while they served, you know, officially under the auspices of the um, American Presbyterian Congo Mission, which is part of the Southern Presbyterian Church, right. a lot of their affiliations were to these schools where they had attended... Um, where they had attended previously. Um, and so in the case of shepherd, um, that included a close relationship with his teacher when he was there, Booker T. Washington, mm-hmm. um, who had been his teacher before Washington became the first principal, of course, of Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. Um, and it also included um, you know, arranging to donate and sell his art collection to Hampton, mm-hmm. which is another kind of important collection there. But to return to the case of Edmiston, who I, who I had mentioned as well, sure. uh, a couple of points that I think are really significant for thinking about her is that when she did this dictionary, I think one of the most intriguing things is not only did she do this... Dictionary, which is you know 600 pages, but part of the dictionary um, has about a 200-page grammar. So she's really interested. That begins the dictionary, which is something that you see kind of during the colonial era being kind of removed from mm-hmm. a lot of the dictionaries, which are much more interested in kind of what would be you know interested in different kinds of a kind of much more sort of um, pigeonized version of the language. Mm-hmm. And so, but what's interesting about the case of um, Edmiston as well, is that within that introduction, she includes an understanding of um, sort of political and cultural history of the Cuba people. Okay. And so one of the things she points out, the long history of, of woman suffrage, right, you know, noting that women had been sort of voting members and had been senators and sort of political figures within the kind of, you know, political systems that had existed prior to the colonial era among mm-hmm. people, right? And so she's someone who's really kind of engaging and understanding that kind of history that you're pointing out out mm-hmm. um, hmm. a pre-colonial history as part of a very p- particular kind of, you know, very at that point, a very kind of contemporary and immediate political history. Um, and that's something that she's kind of directly engaging with. Um, part of her legacy as well, which is worth mentioning in that of other African-American missionaries is some of the translation work they did uh, included, um, included songs. So as the church was translating the Presbyterian hymnal for use um, in its church um, services in mm-hmm. uh, Congo, um, African-Americans, including um, including Edmiston, and I should say some white American missionaries as well, were also sure, translating sure, sure. African-American spirituals into, um, into Chaluba, um, which was another language. So she was working, I should say, in multiple Bantu languages. Um, And so the Chaluba translation of Edmiston, um, one of the most best known ones, is her translation of Swing Low Sweet Chariot. Mm. Uh, And so the idea is that at the time when you have this very kind of contested colonial language policy, you actually have African-American missionaries who are introducing African-American spirituals in Chaluba translations into these Presbyterian hymnals, which seems to be a way that they're really kind of having this profound kind of... um, you know, ways that they're able to kind of mediate mm-hmm. colonial language policy, um, mediate some of the kinds of, you know, sort of, you know, put their mark on the kind of religious teachings of the Presbyterian church at that time. Um, and, wow. you know, you think, and you think about this too, um, you know, for in the case of Edmiston, she's graduating from Fisk in 1903, which is, as we know, is contemporary to the publication of Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk, Correct. which really is kind of invested in elevating um, you know, African-American spirituals, um, you know, through his use of them as kind of epigraphs at the mm. beginning chapters. Folks who are familiar with that but mm-hmm. will recall, but kind of elevating that to, you know, kind of high culture, right, and kind of recognition of the music as a certain kind of cultural, particular kind of cultural practice. Um, and so Edmiston sort of, um, you know, whenever... Edmiston and Shepard, whenever they sort of were on furlough, returning to the United States for sort of periods of time, they would always visit, um, often giving commencement addresses at their alma mater. Mm-hmm. So Edmiston at Fisk, Shepard at um, and Hampton. Hampton, kind mm-hmm. of yeah, and meeting with, engaging with, um, you know, students and faculty and colleagues there. Um, and so after one of these trips to Hampton is when she sort of begins sort of translating a lot of these spirituals a little bit later um, and so there's, you know, these kind of connections to Africa that we can think about through, you know, a lot of these sort of figures who I'm writing about in this book in ways that I think are really, um, you know, are really kind of important to kind of, um, you know, to read and kind of think mm-hmm. about um, mm-hmm you know, as part of this kind of larger kind of cultural, you know, this kind of larger cultural practice and what that would um for the case of the sort of Congolese um, who are sort of who are encountering these African-Americans on these um, on these mission stations, you know, going back to the 19th century.
1: And for, you know, many people who are reading this, Ira, you know, or, or hearing about this, they, they may be getting introduced to the fir- for the first time to some of these figures who were so instrumental and so important in African-American and even African you know, history. And so if you're in a, a Hampton University student or a Hampton alum or out there in Hampton, Virginia, or in that Tidewater area, or you're you a Fisk person, Fisk alum of Na- Nashville there, no. uh, this is a great book for you because some of some of your uh, uh, most well-known and most influential alums are well-featured in Iris' book here. And they did great work in making those connections between Africans and African-Americans. Absolutely. Um, so that's that's great. So shout out to Fisk and to to Hampton.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And both of those universities, of course, have amazing art collections and galleries and yeah. archives, um, you know, which are really important and kind of worth, you know, for folks who are either in those areas, um, you know, hopefully are familiar with it. And if not, sort of to make sure they are. And if folks are traveling in those areas, it's certainly, yeah. um, you know, important, I think, um, things to undertake um, and to kind of, you know, look at the kind of material there. I mean, um, at Hampton. Um, a significant portion of the african collection at the museum is a collection that was collected by william Shepard. um so william Shepard was really the sort of first one of the first and most important collectors of Cuba art um and that's the basis um for um for the collection that they have at um at the collection that they have at, at hampton which is really one of the remains one of the you know, actually, greatest collections both of African and African American mm-hmm. art um, so in, in, in the world. It's it's really fantastic. It really is. Can't say enough about that and, and the folks who work and kind of continue to do that work there. Um, so in the case of that, I mean, if I could make a sort of mention about the kind of material culture and visual kind of culture element mm-hmm. of that. Um, you know, one of the other um, and it's an, there's an image in the book as well that I particularly like and that's an image um, of. Um, from the 1920s from a domestic science class at Hampton, where you see a group of um, female college students and they're studying Cuba textiles, which are some of the textiles that Shepard had collected. Um, mm-hmm. And so they're incorporated in a very practical way as part of the um, part of the education. And if we think about wow. that for William Shepard as well, um, Shepard was always speaking on campus. So he retired or sort of was effectively forced out of the mission in 1910. Um, And during that time period, he spent a lot of time, um, you know, visiting, um, you know, visiting Hampton, um, you know, was close to a series of presidents at at Hampton. Mm -hmm. Um, And during that time, he would always sort of speak both about sort of the politics and his opposition to um, Leopold's reign there at the same time that he was sort of sharing and talking about the history of these textile. And mm-hmm. other kinds of some, you know, some of the other material that he, collect, um, you know, collected when he was there. Um, so that was always part of the same story, right? Which is to say, the political history of opposition to the colonial regime and the kind of practice of collecting art, um, the, you know, sort of what's sort of taken up as art there. And so, I mean, one of the things when we think about Hampton in particular, when we think about the kind of amazing kind of art department that was started there, really in the nineteen forties, um, mm-hmm. when both Um, Charles White and Elizabeth Catlett were visiting there and Charles White did his great and and when Charles White did his great mural there um, Contribution of the Negro to Democracy um, which is a fantastic mural that he did um, and a number of other artists who came through there but during that time one of the most famous um, undergrad, some of the most famous undergraduate students there were Simella Lewis, the great art historian and -hmm. John Biggers um, North Carolinian and um, Founding, founder of the art department at Texas Southern in, in Houston as well a little bit later on. Um, so he, when he came there, um, this was in the late 1930s, early 1940s, there was a professor there who was um, a Jewish refugee from Aus- Austria named Victor Loewenfel, who was also an artist and had been the director of the African Art Museum um, in, um, in Vienna prior to mm-hmm. um, coming in a number of um, – as has been well documented, a number of the Jewish refugee um, scholars um, coming from Europe um, um, ended up teaching at HBCUs. Um, yes, they did, and throughout the U.S. And, and Lowenfeld became a mentor to um, Simela Lewis, John Biggers, and others at a time when he was sort of founding the art department as well. And so then you take Biggers, who's really kind of considered throughout his sort of own sort of career as an artist and educator um, for really thinking about images of Africa in his work. He made a famous trip in 1957 um, to newly independent Gold Coast, Ghana, um, and, you know, did a series of images that were based on that famous book called The Story of Anansi. Um, Mm -hmm. Um, which and a lot of incredible really kind of these are drawings that he did there which are these kind of realist drawings about you know set in um, both Ghana and Nigeria um, but when you think about some of the other kind of aesthetic practices of someone like Biggers they I think they're very much part of as the book tries to argue much mm-hmm. part of a much larger kind of trajectory um, in other words someone who studied African textiles in the early 1940s before all of this and we can kind of see you know people have written about the kind of geometry um, Right. And the stylistic dimensions of a lot of um, Biggers' later work, including, I should say, a number of the murals um, that, mm-hmm. had, uh, that are there in Houston today. Um, and that they kind of draw on this earlier tradition and the kind of aesthetics of that tradition that he would have learned from like someone, um, from someone like William sure. Shepard's collection. Um, and someone, you know, as William Shepard is someone who he would have been quite familiar with, although Shepard was himself deceased at that point. Um, mm-hmm. The other kind of connection that I would make... Um, that's kind of worth thinking about. George, I just kind of mm-hmm. another point about Biggers here that I think is really interesting and in that, you know, by the time that Biggers got to Hampton, the person who recommended him to Hampton was his, the principal of his high school um, in North Carolina okay. at Lincoln Academy in, um, um, in North Carolina. And he was a guy named Henry Curtis McDowell. And mm-hmm. Curtis McDowell became principal of that school after having been a missionary himself in Angola. Uh-huh. Um, and so used to talk to Biggers when he was in high school about Angola, which was also, um, you know, part of the ancient Congo, Congo with the mm-hmm. keg, part of the ancient Congo kingdom. Um, and so Biggers, you know, as someone who sort of trained generations of artists himself at Texas Southern, where he founded the art department in the early 1950s, um, you know, is someone who really would have had all of these other kinds of connections to Africa, uh, mm-hmm. to modern Africa through someone like McDowell through his studying of Shepard's collection during his time at Hampton, through other kinds of um, um, connections that he would have sort of encountered and have continued to encounter at some place like, um, you know, a Texas Southern as well, where there are other mm-hmm. who were traveling to Africa during that time period. Um, and so I think those kinds of connections, when we think about this kind of diaspora, we want to kind of think about these kind of ongoing kinds of engagements mm-hmm. that we see right. in, in the work of someone like, Biggers and in the case of someone like Biggers even when it is that Biggers is kind of right you know drawing images as he did of you know um, Houston architecture of shotgun houses um, mm-hmm. you know, throughout the city and stuff like that. That's something else that I think is really kind of informed by his kind of you know academic studies of, mm-hmm. um, you know of African textiles and the kind of geometric dimensions of that work um, you know going back to Hampton if not before.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and, and all all these things and more you can find in Ira Dworkin's book Congo Love Song African American Culture and the Crisis of the Colonial State published by UNC Press and who is this man with all this knowledge of African and African American culture his name is Ira Dworkin and he's an assistant professor of English at Texas A&M University so he is an an Aggie we will not <laughs> hold that against him <laughs> Ira's it's been it's been really great talking with you and man, I could, I could talk with you all day and feel like I, you know I just my knowledge would increase by 10 or 20 <laughs> uh, you know the the more that you talk and and definitely you know I can hear that that 15 or so years of hard work that you that you put into this, IRA and you know we all as, as readers are, are going to benefit uh, from the, from the efforts that you put in. So again, hats off to you and, and thank you for having this interest. Because it's really going to educate and, and inform me and many other others who, you know, maybe didn't know about or couldn't always make the connections, yeah. which is important because you make yeah, those so. connections yeah. between um, Africans and African-Americans in the 19th and, and 20th century there. So thank you so much for, for that. I mean, this is a great work. And I definitely encourage you all, if you're interested in African, African-American African history, um, to pick up Ira's book, UNC Press. You can click through and pick it up, you know, right through um the podcast page on new Books network and, uh, it's, it's a great thing to add to your collection. And I guess, you know, I, I may be coming to your town. If not, do you, you know, are you open to people getting in contact with you? Ira, if they have questions or, or want to communicate with you?
0: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. Um, you know, for folks who read the book or interested in the topic. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I have a website where there's contact information, which is just iradworkin.com. And also mm-hmm. folks can reach me through there's contact information on the, um, well, on my faculty page at the Texas A&M University English okay. Department as well. So, Yeah,
1: so definitely re- reach out. You know, uh, you never know. You could be uh, in Ira's next work.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Uh, you know, as scholars, you, you never know where the, uh, where the work takes you um so you know someone may be a descendant or something of mr shepherd <laughs> yeah
0: yeah well, I, I i should say i have i uh, have explored the uh, shepherd doesn't have any living descendants oh. but, but i but i think the sentiment uh <laughs> your, sen- right. your sentiment presides because certainly there are yeah. there are figures in the book who do have sort of descendants who i've had the privilege of being in touch with as well through right. this process so
1: yeah a- absolutely and so um I, you know, I guess it was you know around this time because I don't want to keep you all day, Ira. You know, again we could talk all day, but I want to know you've got <laughs> some, some classes and family and things that you've got to uh, um, be involved with as well. Um, but if you don't mind, maybe you, you can share with us some of your current projects or future projects or places that uh, our listeners could find you if they're interested in some of your other work.
0: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I can I'll mention a few things. Um, sure. mind. One is, um, you know, one of the things I had I had mentioned or one of the figures I had mentioned was Pauline Hopkins, who is the editor. Oh, right. Um, you know, really best known today as a novelist, um, wrote three serial magazine novels and also mm-hmm. published contending forces. Um, and she was the editor of the Colored American magazine, which was based in Boston in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so a number of years ago, I published a collection of her nonfiction writings. Uh, oh. And which is to say that I think, you know, there's a number of kind of archival sources, you know, based in things like the black press, um, mm-hmm. you know, where folks can really kind of understand um, and come to think about um, the ways that sort of African... Culture, African kinds of engagements, um, you know, really would have, um, you know, were really kind of instrumental um, within kind of African American print culture right. know, during during that era. Um, so I think that's kind of a really kind of important um, or an example of a kind of important kind of resource or an important kind of context for some of this. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to make it, um, you know, so folks can do certain kinds of um, certain kinds of research. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this project's taken me in a few different directions, one which I'll mention relatively briefly relative to the book that there's also a, sure. um, you know, a chapter in the book when I think about um, and I examine um, Patrice Lumumba, the first um, prime right. minister um, of independent Democratic Republic of Congo, um, who was assassinated um, by um, the Belgians with help from um rebels in Katanga and, and, and the United States, um, as well in early 1961, but the way that he's sort of figured within African American culture, um, throughout the poetry of the black arts movement, um, and also in within kind of other discourses, particularly during the 1960s, but really kind of continuing, um, and I should say even continuing to this day, we recently had, um, earlier this month, uh, Chokwe Antar Lumumba was inaugurated as mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, uh, wow. and who like his father has his name, um, you know, f- you know, takes his name, um, mm-hmm. you know, from, um, you know, two generations from Lumumba as well. Um, and is you know, the mayor of the largest city, um, in the state of Mississippi, um, The But the Lumumba, I think, this moment is sort of intriguing and fascinating as well because the kinds of engagements that African-Americans had with Congo post-independence. So this is something, um, and I'm raising this now because this is something that I'm hopeful to kind of consider um, in some other ways. Um, So after after independence… there were a number of African-Americans who traveled to the Congo and worked there and lived there, um, including some who were recruited by Lumumba himself during a short visit he made to the United States shortly after um, his inauguration in late 1960 to appeal to the United Nations um, for the withdrawal of Belgian um, of Belgian troops. Um, and so during this time, he met and recruited a number of um, African-Americans. And I, I mentioned some of this in the book, um, but the community that emerged there um, you know, during um, – you know, let's say the first five years of independence is really kind of Mm -hmm. remarkable. Um, And it's certainly not as well known and I think as well studied, for instance, particularly as um, the communities that we know about, for instance, in Ghana, um, which is the subject of sort of Kevin Gaines's remarkable research. Um, But I think there's a community there that really brings together a number of um, really important kind of interesting figures, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that I'd like to kind of get to spend some more time with as well. Okay. Um, The second um, project, and this is the book that I'm kind of really mostly invested in at the moment, is a okay. book on a different topic, but I think I can make connections as well, which is a book on um, a man named Nicholas Saeed. Um, and Nicholas mm-hmm. Saeed was from Northeast, a um, 19th century figure who was from Northeast, um, let's say Northeast Nigeria around Lake Chad. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was someone who was captured and enslaved for the trans-Saharan trade and was enslaved Ooh. in North Africa um, in the you know, 1840s and 1850s um, in Europe um, in Asia during this time period. He's emancipated and comes to the United States as the Civil War is beginning. He comes as a free, wow. as a free person to the United States and immediately um, soon thereafter enlists um, in the Union Army um, and he fights for the Massachusetts 55th Regiment, um, oh, okay. which was founded after the Massachusetts 54th, which is sort of the famous okay. subject of the movie Glory mm-hmm. and um, headed by um, whose white commanding officer was Robert Gould Shaw. Um, And so Saeed joined this group of the 55th, which was this kind of remarkable group um, of, you know, highly educated African-Americans sort of committed to, you know, their own emancipation and fighting for their sure. own emancipation and he was a kind of part of this community and published several autobiographies um after about his experiences um in oh, Africa's nice. experiences right. in Europe primarily about his travels also about his um religion um you know he was a Muslim um mm-hmm. we and we we know of other Muslims and other African born figures who fought during the Civil War um, mm-hmm. but so the what I'm interested in doing is kind of thinking about these kind of two autobiographies that he mm-hmm. you know um wrote um during the 19th century, um, as being kind of central texts of an early or African American discourse, one that engages in very, very concrete and material ways with both Africa and Islam um, Mm. during this time period. And, you know, the sort of connections to this Congo project, which might not seem, um, you know, immediately obvious, are, you know, the questions that animate both of these projects are really questions about how African Americans at different points um, during this time, their engagements with African connections to Africa were much more material and they came through kind of individuals like Nicholas Saeed or William Shepard um, you know, just to sort of take two examples, right? And mm-hmm. so what we can sort of take away, not only from kind of studying these individuals as individuals, but as individuals that are part of these communities, right? And okay. so for Shepard, it's part of, you know, thinking about him as part of this community around Hampton or Edmiston around this community, around Fisk in particular. Um, if we're thinking about, um, you know, someone like Nicholas Said, you know, a community of African-Americans around sort of the Massachusetts 55th and what we know the kind of, you know, the kind of culture of that kind of community was like Um, in other sort of networks and places in which his kind of work circulated. And so I think it's a kind of really, you know, I think it kind of really builds on a lot of the really exciting work on the African diaspora that's taking place and really enables us to kind of think about the kinds of knowledge um, and religious practices, particularly around Islam, um, that have these really kind of much longer histories um, in the United States um, than we often tend to Kind of acknowledge,
1: right, right. People don't even realize, you know, that um, yeah, African Muslims. Go, I mean, it goes way yeah, back.
0: absolutely, sure, sure, certainly, yeah, you know, in history. Yeah,
1: well, Ira, both both of those sound pretty good to me, man. You know, you go, we got like Co- Congo love song too, <laughs> sort of, not <laughs> exactly, but and yeah, then, so, sure, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. <laughs> and then, um, and then we have, you know, your 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 other, uh, you know, project where you're kind of talking about that, uh, you know, that, that African Muslim that you know around civil war. Uh, and post-civil war in America, you know, so when you get those ready to go, definitely we want to get you back on the program, Ira, for
0: sure. Absolutely. Anytime. Wow. Yeah. So
1: yeah, those sound those sound great. So uh listeners if you know you you've you've heard Ira mention his his topics there. If you've got any information or any interest or anything you can share with them or to help, um definitely he would love to hear from you, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> we'll make it make your research a little it's easier. A I'm I'll
0: sure. always love to be in touch with folks for sure. Shared interests. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, yeah, Ira, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It's, you know, it's summertime and you're you're kind of relaxing a little bit from uh, that ch- that challenging uh, school year. And, you know, it's, it's summertime with, with family. So, you know, so I really appreciate you, uh, you know, taking some time with us on the African American Studies channel of the New Books Network and, and sharing your, your book with us. And we talked a little bit offline. You know, you're not too far away from me here in Houston, so we got to get you down here. and. I'll show you around, man, and you know I'll, I'll show you a good time, and you know you can we can hang out and do some Houston stuff. How about sounds that? Sounds great. Anytime, love that. Uh, it, it sounds great to me too. And so one more time, you know, and, and I can't emphasize this enough. So I, enough. I really love Ira's book, and it's called Congo Love Song: African American Culture and the Crisis of the Colonial State, published by UNC Press. And Ira Dworkin is his name. He's an assistant professor of English at Texas A&M. University, so definitely check his book out and you know uh you know you can get in contact contact with him if you have any questions or you know anything you want to talk with him about if you really like the book, he'd really appreciate that or yeah drop drop us a line at the new books network african american studies channel you know if you can't if you can't reach IRA share it with me i'll definitely get get it to him <laughs> sure. all right. So we're going to close out here. Ira, if you, any last thoughts or comments you want to share with the audience before we go? No,
0: th- I mean, thank you, James, for the interview. Thanks for the work that you do. And uh, thanks to folks oh, for listening. It,
1: Absolutely. And definitely, if you're in Houston area, I'm, I'm already talking with Ira about getting him down for a book talk. So don't worry about that. We're going to try to get him here um, and, you know, with our friends at Brazos bookstore and see if we can get him in and, and uh, share some of his stories and his insights. Um, so on that note, we're going to let Ira go. And hang out with his family a little bit during the summer. But thank you so much for listening. And, Iris, you can tell our audience goodbye.
0: Goodbye, and thanks for everything.
1: It's our pleasure. So we will see you next time and hear you next time. And you'll hear from us on the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel. Peace and love. All right, we're back here on the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James Stantz, and I would like to thank Ira Dworkin for taking some time out of his schedule during the summer here and talk with us about his book, Congo Love Song, African-American Culture and the Crisis of the Colonial State. I hope you enjoyed the interview. It was great talking with Ira. And this is a great book, y'all. Y'all, y'all check it out if you want to uh, learn more about the connections between African-Americans. And uh, the continent of Africa, mainly during the uh, 20th century, but also during the uh, 19th century. It's a UNC Press book, Congo Love Song. So, again, thank you, Ira. Thank everyone for listening. And we will see you, hear you and talk with you next time on the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network. Peace and love.